Welcome to another TeachingAmericanHistory.org webinar, sponsored by the Ashbrook Center at Ashland University. TH.org is the leading online resource for documents-based study of American history, government, and civics for teachers, students, and citizens. Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome to the first of our uh, TeachingAmericanHistory.org webinars of this new academic year, which is sponsored by the Ashbrook Center at Ashland University. Uh, TeachingAmericanHistory.org is the leading online resource for document-based study of American history, government, and civics for teachers, students, and citizens. Uh, my name is Chris Burkett. I am Associate Professor of Political Science and History and Co-Chair of our Master of Arts in American History and Government program here at Ashland University. And I want to welcome all of you to uh, a new series of webinars this year. The theme of this year's webinars are Landmark Supreme Court Cases. Uh, for those of you joining us for the first time, the point of these webinars is to pull together some thoughtful scholars and just have a conversation uh, this year about 10 historically important Supreme Court cases. We encourage all of you to join that conversation by submitting questions via the chat box feature, and we'll try to get to as many of those questions as possible in the next hour and 15 minutes that we have together. In the next week, you'll receive an email with a link to request a certificate of participation, as well as a, as well as a link to the archived video and audio from today's program. Now, to help us think about our topic today and all of our uh, Supreme Court cases that we'll be talking about this year, we are drawing speeches, letters, and writings from the Ashbrook Center's extensive document database, which is, again, available at teachingamericanhistory.org. Uh, today, we're going to be starting with a big one, uh, an early court case, um, Marbury v. Madison, which was decided in 1803. And to help us discuss uh, and understand this court case better. We have with us today Todd Estes, of, uh, Associate Professor of History at Oakland University, and Jeff Sickinga, Professor of Political Science here at Ashland University. And I'll just mention quickly that both of them uh, are not only fine scholars, but outstanding teachers, and they teach regularly in our uh, Master of Arts program here at Ashland University. So good morning, Todd and Jeff. Good morning. Welcome. Morning. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having us. Glad to be here. Great to see both of you. Um, so let's just, I'm going to start with a broad question and we'll see where this goes and you take it in any direction that you like. But um, this is the first uh, case that we're going to discuss in this series of landmark cases. And besides the obvious reason that it's, that it's, it's an early case, it's an 1803 case, why, why should we think of this as a landmark case? And I'll let either of you start. Well, I'll just jump in. I think one of the key things about this case is that it really encapsulates a lot of the political debates between Federalists and Jeffersonian Republicans over a whole range of things, not only constitutional issues, but the nature of judges, the relationship between courts and legislatures in a Republican society. And I think we see here, as I hope we'll talk about over the next hour and a half or so, um, a lot of those kinds of things really, really playing out. Because on the one hand, we're talking about a particular case with particular individuals, but we're also talking about uh, particular legal principles. But I think sort of around and beneath and in between all that is a fascinating political debate that's never far from the surface uh, and that kind of f focuses on two individuals, John Marshall and Thomas Jefferson, 
but also um, draws on a lot of the party animosities of the 1790s and a lot of the significance of the Jeffersonian victory in 1801, which left the courts as essentially the only place where federalists still had a lot of control and influence. Yeah, I think that's absolutely essential what Todd points out. Um, there has been a tendency over time, and one of the reasons it's become a landmark decision, of course, is subsequent to that era of the 1790s and early 1800s, the, this decision has been used and misused by judges, Supreme Court justices, lawyers, and, and, and really in the public mind <clears throat> to establish what, you, what we might call the supremacy of the Supreme Court in constitutional interpretation. And I think Todd's absolutely right. If you don't, if you forget the historical context, it's very easy to read, misread Marbury v. Madison and use it and misuse it for purposes that um, I'm not sure John Marshall would have accepted when he handed down the ruling in 1803. So it's a landmark decision for the because of its significance at the time and, it, and the importance historically of it at the time, but also its subsequent use by in the Supreme Court history and canon uh, to establish the authority of the Supreme Court. Yeah, that's, that's fascinating. So before we, um, I'd like to talk about the sort of the substance of the case, and uh, hopefully the, uh, a lot of this will be useful for the teachers who are joining us who, ha who actually teach this in their own classes. Um, and then, of course, also, as, as you were pointing out, Jeff, the, the sort of long-term consequences and use or misuse of the case uh, by future uh, courts. But can we, can, we, can we go into a little bit more detail about the political circumstances? I find this fascinating. This is, this is something I'm not that clear on. I, I, I always suspected that because Marshall was a Federalist and, and this case comes to the courts shortly after the, um, the Jeffersonian victory in 1800, I've always been fascinated by the effect, the political effect of the, sh of the sort of shift uh, among the parties and what, what effect that had on, uh, on Marshall in this position as Supreme Court justice. Can we say a little bit more about the political circumstances here, please? Yeah, I think for, um, for the Federalists in particular, when they, in 1800 and 1801, when they lose control of the presidency in both houses of Congress, uh, they're effectively left with the judiciary as their only kind of foothold for any kind of, of real power, because at the state level as well, Federalists were losing out to Republicans. So fewer and fewer state legislatures are in Federalist hands, the Federalist uh, slice of the, not only of the electorate, but their slice of, of office holding is diminished. And in many ways, John Marshall, who is a committed Federalist, but also in many ways something of a, I guess I might say a political moderate, in the, that he's willing to, to reach out and understand different positions. He's very much someone who deals in compromise. And what Marshall tries to do, I think, one way of thinking about not only Marbury, but actually almost the entirety of Marshall's reign on the Supreme Court, is to think of him as trying to protect the independence of the court and also to enshrine some Federalist principles subtly in the actions of the court so that they can carve out a kind of independent wedge to block what Marshall and other Federalists think of as sort of reckless, poorly thought out policy decisions by the Jeffersonian administration. And I think in many ways, as we'll see, Jefferson both uh, meets those expectations but frustrates them because Jefferson never proves to be the sort of antichrist that the Federalists claim he is in the election of 1800, and he never proves to be the person who's going to tear down the federal edifice, the federal government, 
uh, as many Federalists feared, Jefferson, in fact, turns out to be something of a, of a kind of moderate. You know, he takes some Hamiltonian ideas and the Hamiltonian structure and simply tries to put them in, in Republican, both capital letter and small r Republican uh, hands. And I think that's going to be something that frustrates some of Jefferson's own radicals in his own party. But I think from Marshall's standpoint, what Marshall is trying to do is kind of fight, I think of it as kind of a rear guard action. He's trying to protect federalism, trying to protect the court, and trying to do it in the atmosphere of being in the real minority politically in the country. So it's a tough act to, to have to do, and I think Marshall is able to, to, to do that really skillfully. Yeah. Can I just add to what Todd says? That's really exciting. Uh, that's really insightful, and I would just add that, and the way, I, especially Marshall's desire to preserve the as an institution, partly because it's the last place for the Federalist political principles to obtain and to have some effect in shaping the country as it goes forward, and partly because, of course, he's a, a jurist and a man of law, and politically a moderate, but also thinks very highly of the rule of law in moderate political passions and sort of giving a, a, a higher tone and elevation to Republican government. He was always a small R Republican from the very beginning. Uh, he, he did not have the sort of uh, supposed aristocratic leanings of the high Federalists. And I really think it's important. He wanted to preserve Marbury v. Madison. He, the court is really caught and Marshall himself is caught, I think, between two real conflicts. And the one is alluded to by Todd, and that's the, the weakness of the court at the time of the 1790s and 1800s. Marshall's caught between the weakness of the court as an institution and the need to preserve whatever strength the court did have and could have as the republic goes forward. Uh, you know, it's, it's very hard for us to remember this, but you, those of you who teach your American history in the early Republic period, you know that the court was a very weak institution, um, politically weak, right. legally weak, judicially weak. Um, you know, just as a couple of examples, in 1793, they handed down the uh, decision in Chisholm v. Georgia, and that decision was reversed by the 11th Amendment. So the court hands down a significant decision, and one of the first things that happens is overruled by constitutional amendment, and the overruling actually narrows the federal judiciary's jurisdiction in the constitutional amendment. So the court hands down ruling, it's overturned. Um, there's a high turnover among justices. John Jay leaves the court. Oliver Ellsworth leaves the court. They don't have any building, unlike um, what Congress is going to have or the president. They don't have their own separate building. There's no money for one that's appropriated. Um, even the practice of judicial review, which of course this case is in its legal and constitutional sense is, is really about, even the practice of judicial review, while it was accepted, it, it was, the Americans were coming out of a long tradition of legislative and executive interpretation of the Constitution not just judicial interpretation. So it wasn't even clear what role the court was going to play in interpreting the Constitution, much less whether it had the political or kind of moral authority to act as an institution. And so I think understanding that conflict, and that's very prominent in Marshall's mind, um, it helps us also understand the way that this opinion is written and the way that the decision is made. And, and this is a unanimous decision, right? 
It is. So mm-hmm. had there been, do you, either of you know, I mean to put you on the spot, do either of you know, had there been court decisions before this that were not unanimous? Yes. There were, there were, in fact. Okay. Well, I mean, you know, Todd, I'm, I'm sure can speak more to this, but one of the, one of John Marshall's innovations was to create what we now call the opinion of the court. Uh, you know, before John Marshall, the Supreme Court used to deliver its opinions ad, ad seriatim, which means mm-hmm. each individual justice prepared an opinion and they would hand down, and of course they'd tally the vote, so they had a vote and a decision, but they did not really have a formal opinion of the court. Marshall was the one who really institutionalized that idea, again, because he wanted the court to speak as an institution and therefore some more clout. Very interesting. Do yeah, we know Jeff, the – go ahead, Todd, sorry. Oh, yeah, sorry. Um, Jeff's exactly right. Those are really good points, and I think this is all part of Marshall's plan to um, strengthen the role of the court in its place. And I think the idea of getting the court to speak as one, as with one voice, as Jeff notes, is critically important because even when justices agreed previously, they tended to offer separate opinions, and people would emphasize different points and it tended to dilute the overall ruling. But what Marshall got the court to do over time is, is to speak with one voice and then, of course, Marshall wrote a great number of those rulings himself, so we could really sort of put his uh, personal stamp on, on a lot of what the uh, a lot of what the court was doing. And the other kinds of things that are, I think, critical here too. Speaking of the historical background, it's just sort of the overall role of what early Americans thought about judges, courts, and lawyers in general. Uh, and there was particularly after the American Revolution in the 1770s and 80s, a real kind of revulsion at, uh, at judges. They were often scorned and mocked as elites. Um, their, their wigs and their robes and their uh, things were made, were made fun of. They were scorned as uh, elite men of learning. Um, and there was a real sort of anti-lawyer, anti-judicial uh, tendency that, that really threw things in the hands of, as Jeff noted earlier, the legislature. And the thinking of many Americans was the legislature and officeholders will decide the law and, and these things. And so the court really had to fight against a lot of that. And, of course, in the 1780s, uh, even in the debate over the Constitution, when, the, um, when a lot of that begins to swing back a little bit in favor of, of seeing judges and courts in a, in a better light, there are still a lot of arguments by anti-federalists. And we've, we've read several of them in the readings for this selection by Brutus, for example, um, 11 and 12 and some of those later Brutus essays that we had for this session really make it clear how many Federalists feared that this, the court was this, this vague force that would sort of you know, suck power away from the legislatures, away from the people, into its, um, into its being, and that therefore this was a process that could over time really deprive Americans of their liberties, of their rights, uh, et cetera. So many anti-Federalists were very critical of that. And then some, on almost a class level, were just critical of the lawyers who tended to be better educated, uh, wealthier, more powerfully connected. And so there's a real sort of um, animosity toward lawyers and judges. And I think all of that is reinforced by Jefferson and the triumph of the Republicans in 1800, because their message is in large part anti-elites, anti-federalists in, in the sense of the party. And I think a lot of what they do is try to promote an egalitarianism, and a kind of uh, rough equality that really works against the, the Federalists and against courts. So I think Marshall has to deal with, with all of that and find some way to manage that and, and fulfill several objectives at once. But he's got to do it against exactly that backdrop that Jeff uh, very nicely talked about. 
Yeah, and I and I would just add to that to the extent that the Republicans, especially after their their huge victories in 1800, to the extent that sort of Republican political constituencies like law courts and law, they of course tend to like state courts and state law, um, and and per, even the idea of elected judges, and that's especially popular as a lot of people know in the West and in the South where the Republican Party was particularly strong. So. Uh, even if they happen to like judges or are willing to accept judicial authority, it's generally not speaking federal judicial authority. Right. Oh, that's great. Those are great connections too, by the way, because I had always, uh, you're, you're right, Todd, especially the, 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 the characterization of the courts as being sort of aristocratic, favoring the wealthy and the mm-hmm. educated from anti-federalists is a, is a great connection um, that I hadn't put into political context before. Um, we have a, a number of great questions already from our participants and, uh, both of you, I think have, have, uh, have, have, um, piqued some curiosity, especially about the sort of political background of Marshall on the court. Uh, Billy, for example, asks, was Marshall's response a moderate one rather than a conservative one? Uh, to put it another way, was he defending the judiciary from a sort of politicization or was he politicizing the judiciary? Can, can I just take a step at that briefly? Please. Because yeah. that's sort of the other conflict that I've always thought Marshall found himself in. And that's the conflict, um, the immediate political conflict between the high Federalists and the radical Republicans after the election of 1800 um, in their battle over the Republicans' attempt to repeal the Judiciary Act. Um, that, that we, we kind of forget there's a companion case to Marbury uh, v. Madison, which is Stewart v. Laird, which at the time, in fact, most people thought was the more significant constitutional and especially politically charged case. And that question was that the, the um, uh, Republicans had passed an, a repeal of the Federal Judiciary Act uh, of 1801, and their attempt was they, what they wanted to do was um, get cut down the number of federal courts. And the idea was, therefore, that state courts would take over a lot of that business. But there was a constitutional question arose. I mean, politically, of course, there was a great uh, fight over it. And they wanted state courts to hear that because, of course, state courts were much more likely to be favorable to debtors' interests, for example, in Western and Western interests, and they were much more likely to defer to state authority. And so they replaced the Judiciary Act passed by the Federalists at the last minute of 1801 with the Act of 1802, which attempted to repeal things like um, certain federal courts. But the constitutional question was, can you do that if judges have lifetime tenure or tenure for good behavior? Can you get rid of their court, but then do you still have to have the federal judge there? Or because they have good behavior, does their person bring continue their office, so to speak? And this was the debate, and the radical Republicans were saying, get rid of all of them, the offices and the judges. The high Federalists were insisting, this is a matter of the rule of law and the judicial authority and the authority of the federal government, fight tooth and nail. And you had people like um, Marshall being a moderate among the Federalists. And as Todd pointed out, you also had Thomas Jefferson actually being a moderate among the Republicans, saying, isn't there some way we can work this out? I would rather not have this kind of crisis and constitutional conflict right after this election. So that's another crisis that, that is existing. And Stuart v. Laird got on the Supreme Court's docket, um, coming right up there with Marbury v. Madison. 
Yeah, I would agree with basically everything Jeff said. I think those points are very well taken. And I think, again, the, I think the original question was, was he acting defensively to sort of protect the court? And I, I think pretty clearly he was because of what um, Jeff had just talked about. The, I mean, the Federalists, as they were going out of power in 1801, uh, offered a new Judiciary Act, which really tried to take power away from, from Jefferson's hands. It, it uh, created more circuit courts, um, and it also lessened the workload of the Supreme Court and, and shrunk the size of the court from six to five judges so that Jefferson would actually have to wait until there were two vacancies before he could appoint anybody to, to fill that, that opening. Um, and that was really clearly a hostile act by the Federalists who did it because they could. They still had power in 1801 before, before March 4th. Um, and that's what a lot of the Judiciary Act of 1802, as Jeff just uh, nicely summarized, um, what was designed to sort of, sort of counter. So again, in that context, there is this war going on over what the court is supposed to look like, what its jurisdiction is, how large is it, is it supposed to be, how does it relate to the circuit and the local district courts. And these are, again, both political questions. They're also legal questions. They're questions about power and authority. And the two people who sort of get bubbled up to the top of that, um, as Jeff notes, are, are Marshall and Jefferson. And I think both of them do behave, as he noted, in many ways in moderate ways. They both sort of turn to the hardcore uh, or radical edges of their own parties and say, in effect, you know, we can't do this. We're not going to go that far. Um, Jefferson doesn't do that to the eternal frustration of many radical Republicans who basically say, look, what good does it do to win elections if we're not going to change the things that we care about? Um, and Jefferson, of course, I think was changing those things, but not at as fast a pace as some radicals wanted. And Marshall, rather than digging in his heels and fighting tooth and nail as many Federalists wanted him to, Marshall sort of realized that would be a losing case. Marshall could count votes, he understood numbers, he could read election returns, and he knew very clearly that if Marshall was going to protect the court and the Federalist Party, he was going to have to be shrewd and careful in what he did. And that's why I think Marshall does what he does in Marbury versus Madison and other decisions, which are not you know, sweeping claims or grabs for power, but ways of trying to carve out a niche here an opportunity there uh, to, to state a principle now that you can come back to next year or five years or 10 years down the road. And pretty soon you've got a whole body of cases in law that will be on your side. So yeah, I think Jeff, uh, Jeff puts that question very nicely in, in thinking about how it, uh, how it all plays out politically. Right. Can you, uh, there's a, just a point of clarification. Can we spell out the name of that case, Jeff, you were referring to? Sure. Uh, spell it and literally spell it. Yeah, somebody yeah, wants yeah, the spelling. Sure, it's S-T-U-A-R-T, Stewart v. Laird, L-A-I-R-D. Got it. Thank you. Just yeah. for clarification. Yeah. Um, so, so, th so this case comes, of course, in the midst of this, this political turn that's taking place that has begun before 1800, seemed to gain a lot of momentum in 18, certainly gained a lot of momentum in 1800. Can we say something about how the public thought of this case? Um, did, did anybody pay attention to this case? Um, Maybe before we get into the sort of the guts of the case and and and, and what led to it and uh, uh, you know the the precedents that it set, if any, what was the what was the public thinking um, about this case? How did they think about it after the decision was made? Even sure, I I can tell you about it before. Certainly, I mean Todd can talk more about it, but um, and I, I take a lot of this by the way from a really really great biography of Marshall written by Gene Edward Smith called John Marshall, Definer of a Nation. It's, I, I regard it, it's, it's even better than the 
uh, beverage biography, I think, of Marshall. So if people want to study Marshall more in depth, it's a really great place to start. Um, and, you know, what, what Gene Smith notes is that um, this, the Marbury v. Madison case, it was, it, you know, it was on the public mind, certainly the mind of the political public, the politically engaged public and the parties, um, because it pitted John Marshall against the new administration of James Madison and Thomas Jefferson. So it was a personality conflict. And, and that's the way that people were seeing it, as, and also, of course, in light of the politics and constitutional thinking, but just as two very important public people are going at it here. And so it was, it was in the newspapers that, you know, that the court was going to be handing down this decision. It was, and Marshall um, read the decision, and it's a pretty long decision. He read the decision, I think it was in the second story of the, of the inn or tavern where they lived. Um, at, at, in Washington, D.C., the Supreme Court. Um, but it was, the room was packed. It was a very dramatic setting, um, not like a lot of other Supreme Court decisions, which are sort of dry legal things read to two interested lawyers who happened to be there. This was a – people, the public knew about this, but most of them knew about it because of the personal – possibility of personal conflict between the president and the chief justice. Fascinating. Mm-hmm. Yeah, some things don't change, I guess. That's um, right. Or, or, the, or they've gotten, gotten worse in some ways. So Billy asked about the press. Uh, so the press, anybody know anything about the press reaction to this? Uh, th- those sorts of things you were just talking about, Jeff, I'm sure were carried into the press, and we know that the press at the time was very... Uh, very partisan, yeah. Very I mean, partisan. What's interesting yeah. is, I just had one more thing. Todd wants to jump in, of course. But um, I, today we think that this case is fundamentally about judicial review. And that's the way it's always taught in constitutional law classes and, you know, uh, social science classes, law school and all the rest. Um, the, Gene Smith has looked at a lot of the press at the time after the decision was handed down. And what's quite amazing is almost nobody, whether it was Federalist press or Republican press, attacked the fundamental idea that the Supreme Court has the power of judicial review to review acts and declare them constitutional or unconstitutional um, for, the, for their own purposes. Almost nobody, including Thomas Jefferson, did not attack that part of the ruling. What, what split the press was the decision over whether or not especially Madison had to deliver or what should morally or legally have had to deliver the commission to Marbury. That's the immediate political fight that Todd was talking about, and that's what grabbed the attention of the press after the decision. We think now, oh, it was an enormously controversial assertion of judicial review. There's almost no criticism or commentary of that in the press at the time. Yeah, and that's a big question I wanted to ask both of you. I'm sorry, Todd, jump in on that if you you like, please, but uh, just to throw that out there. I was taught growing up that the significance of this case was that it established the doctrine of judicial review. And I have found, I think you're both saying this, that that's not, that's not actually the case. And in fact, if you read, uh, we, we asked uh, participants to read uh, Federal 78 and also the Brutus, some, uh, Brutus 11. Uh, it seems to me that both Federalists and Anti-Federalists during the ratification debates acknowledged that there would be a power of judicial review um, lodged in the federal judiciary. And of course, the Federalists thought that this was a relatively weak power, but a necessary power 
But the but the anti-federalists, especially Brutus, seem to say, yeah, part of the reason we don't like the judiciary is precisely because they will have the power of judicial review. So so am I right about that? Did did most people acknowledge the the idea that the courts had the power of judicial review? Well, I think this is, as Jeff was saying, this is all part of the, the real conflict between uh, the sides here and the conflict over, uh, over so many of these matters. Um, but yeah, just in, in, to go back to the previous uh, uh, point a little bit, um, we look back historically and we can trace the concept of judicial review pretty clearly to this case. But there's a much larger issue, I think, in, in which we might note, and here I draw, um, you know, Jeff's mentioned uh, Gene Smith's work, I would also draw on the work of the legal historian William Nelson, who's written quite a bit about these, these ideas as well. And uh, he and others have noted the case, uh, this, the situation where judicial review really, in many ways, is best thought of as a process that plays out over time. It's not as if judicial review was suddenly activated by this decision. And from that point on, it was a smooth, easy process. I think in a lot of ways, judicial review is something that's articulated in this case but it really is going to require subsequent cases and that subsequent acknowledgement Jeff talked about that the court does have this authority um, to decide constitutionality, that's something that can only play out over time. I don't think one decision could do it, especially given that it's a decision handed down by a Federalist Chief Justice in a Republican majority country. I think we have to sort of, it's a, it's a, it's a first step, it's a critical first step, and a clear statement of that principle. But I do think, as we'll talk and probably see today, it does have to play out over time. It does take a little bit more to um, uh, a longer history of subsequent cases to, to really articulate that and to make that play out. But Todd, do you think that, do you think that the court is, um, in Marbury, establishing the doctrine of judicial review or changing, perhaps, the, uh, the meaning or the or sort of the traditional understanding going back to the sort of era of ratification about what judicial review would mean? Or are you, are you saying they didn't quite know what it meant and they're just sort of feeling their way through it a little bit? Yeah, I, I think it's in some way. I mean, we look back at it now as a very clear definitive statement. And in some ways that's true. But I think also we have to notice the kind of uh, hedged quality of parts of it and the ambiguity of some of it. I mean, this is in some way sort of a tentative statement. I mean, when we, as we'll talk, I'm sure, in a few minutes here about the three questions that Marshall raises, he brings those up in a particular order, I think, for a particular reason. Because essentially in those first two questions, he's going to kind of wag his finger at Jefferson and Madison and says, you messed up. You didn't do what you should have done. Uh, you violated Marbury's right to this commission. You should have handed this over, and you didn't. But then instead of arriving at a conclusion where he... Uh, you know, scolds them or, or asserts some power against them, he realizes he doesn't have that much power. And so what he does instead is to say, however, even though you're wrong, we don't have the power to change that. So it's a very clever response in which he's able to make it clear that he believes Jefferson Madison are wrong about this, that the court does have the authority to review this law, but that in reviewing that law, they have no power to force the delivery of the commission to Marbury. So I think by doing that, it's, it's a way of, it's again, Jeff noted very importantly a minute ago, Jefferson doesn't challenge this. He doesn't fight back against this. And yet in some ways you have to think that Jefferson sort of knew that Marshall had outfoxed him, that Marshall had sort of found a way to kind of box him in and agree to a principle, even though he was going to give Jefferson in, in the, that day and age what he wanted. That is, he doesn't have to deliver the commissions, but at the same time say, but look, here's the larger point I want to bring up. 
and this is why you messed up, and this is why you can't can't do it again. That's that's right. And I to, to go to the original question, and that's a really important point because the fact is that American courts certainly and British courts before, but American courts. As we see, if you read Federal 78, right, judicial review is clearly contemplated by people like um, Hamilton in defending the judicial power. There's no question about that. And that's because American courts had been, including federal courts, had been practicing judicial review before 1803. What you get in this case is an articulation, perhaps up to that point, the clearest articulation of the, the character and grounds of the court's power to uh, review, but Todd's right. We think, therefore, I mean, the Supreme Court, it's not just um, we, the Supreme Court has said this in a case in 1958. Well, Marbury v. Madison said, we're the final authoritative interpreter of the Constitution. Well, no, it doesn't, actually. Uh, and and that, that, that's what we call judicial supremacy, right? And this, the, 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 tr the truth is, American courts have been practicing judicial review before 1803. In 1803, it's articulated, but then there's a great struggle over the, through the rest of the 19th century, really, and maybe even well into the 20th, over does the power of judicial review mean that the court is supreme in its interpretation of the Constitution? And that is not settled yeah. by Marbury Mar v. Madison at all. And in fact, I would even argue it's not even claimed by Marshall in Marbury v. Madison. So I'd like to, I'd like to get to, again, I'd like to get to the, the sort of the, the constitutional heart and the three questions as Todd was saying. But on that point, Jeff, um, today we tend to think judicial review does mean that the court has the, the final say on the Constitution. Can can I, both of you or either of you just give us a uh, a sense of what judicial review would have meant to Marshall at least at this point? Maybe that's too that's too hard of a question. What it, what is how did they think of it? What does actually judicial review mean? Can you give us a kind of let, definition? Let me, just, let me just take a brief, a quick crack at it, and Todd can jump in. Um, it means the uh, I would I put it this way: the Hamilton and Federalist seventy eight, and I think Marshall here in this case, judicial review is a shield and not a sword. By which I mean it's mm -hmm. the power of the courts to protect their independence so that they can do their job, which is act as a court of law and not and be governed by the supreme law, the Constitution, and not be governed by an unconstitutional law or action, which would make them subservient and dependent on the legislature or the executive. So its claim is that the courts have the power to interpret the Constitution and declare an act of, of the legislature void if it's in conflict with the Constitution. But the claim in Federal 78, and here I think echoed by Marshall, is that void, void means that the law does not operate in that federal court. That's, oh, a, that, that's a limited okay. understanding. They're not saying that because it is void, it doesn't operate in our court, and therefore it's struck from the law books and the president cannot act on it. That's not what they're saying. In these cases, this fact set doesn't actually lend itself to that because they end up saying, we don't have the power to make Jefferson do something. <laughs> so there's no response necessary. But it means void means does not operate in this courtroom while we're exercising our judicial power and deciding this case. It does not mean that you have to abide by this, Mr. our interpretation of the Constitution, Mr. President or Congress. Wow, that's yeah, fascinating. I, Go ahead, please. I, yeah, I would agree with that. I, I, think, um, I think that's very well taken. Um, 
I think what Marshall does here, as I suggested earlier, is in many ways he's more interested in protecting and defending than the, the shield idea that, that Jeff mentioned, than using this as a sword. This is not a brutal declaration of judicial supremacy. It's not a clear claim that the court can review. I mean, this is a fairly limited, circumscribed um, decision as we, as we read it. And although I think Marshall did have in mind the kind of notion that the courts should be able to review acts and judge constitutionality, he doesn't really say that here because I think he knows he can't claim that authority yet. Um, it's just simply not there. What does happen, I think, uh, over time is that Marshall is able to move the court in that direction. But I, I do think this is the kind of ruling that is more about protecting uh, the independence of the court. He's very concerned about doing that because if the court loses that independence, if they are swallowed up by one of the other branches or simply become irrelevant, then there's no, this concept of judicial review in, in any form is certainly not going to happen from the judiciary standpoint. So I, I think he's got to take several first steps before he gets to the, the broader goal. It's sort of, again, a means to an end, I think. And that's why I think we have to be careful about claiming too sweeping an authority. I think Jeff's absolutely right about this. You have to be careful about claiming that Marbury versus Madison you know, establishes judicial review for once and all. It, it really doesn't do that. I think it does, and we can understand it because we've talked about the political dimensions. It does carve out an independence and a scope, which can then be added to later on, and it creates the first step of several that will lead to what Marshall and others would think of as, and what we might think of as, judicial review, but it doesn't do it all at once because it really can't do it all at once. Well, that's, that's very helpful. Can we, um, let's, let's um, turn then to the sort of substance of the case that, or the opinion, uh, but before that, let's, uh, maybe, maybe we'll take a different approach. Let's, let's approach the, you know, how the case actually gets to the court uh, from, the, from the perspective of Jefferson and Madison. Why did they do what they did? Um, I mean, we know there are political reasons, but let me put it this way. Did they not think that this was even a constitutional issue? That, in other words, the withholding of, of, uh, of commissions from appointed officers, did they, did they not think that this was even a constitutional issue? Did they think it should not even have gone to the court? Um, or did they just not, they not foresee that this, uh, that this would sort of turn out the way that it did? Maybe I'm asking the question the wrong way. I'm trying to get us, no, no, I'm trying no, to no. ask the question. How how did the case get to the court? <laughs> well, I would just say for one thing, the, the Jefferson and Madison's position was Jefferson's legal position, and he 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 resented two things about the decision. Um, he, again, he did not quarrel with the basic idea that courts could review uh, the constitutionality of a law. He 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 never liked. Um, Said he never liked the being told that they had to deliver it. He thought that was actually gratuitous and unnecessary and sort of um, too personal. The other thing as a matter of law that he didn't like was um, the commission was signed and sealed but not delivered. And Jefferson's reading of law was that for a thing to be um, for to have a vested right in it, the commission had to be signed, sealed, and delivered. So, um, and he said Marshall simply misunderstood the law on this point. So, um, I, I, why they didn't why they didn't think it was going to be a big issue was because they thought that um, uh, Marbury had actually no legal claim because the commission was not delivered to him. So, therefore, he didn't have the office. So, if he sued in federal court, it wasn't going to help him because he wasn't going to have any standing to be able to sue because he didn't have any legally vested right 
to to the claim. And that and the politics of it, of course, which is they weren't going to be told by John Marshall and the Federalists after their victory. <laughs> right, of course. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's, that, that's exactly right. And I, I think the other thing, too, is that um, Jefferson and Madison saw this as a purely political act of hostility by the outgoing Federalist. Um, and they understood it in those terms. And John Marshall as well, from, from what we know, I think Marshall seems to have sort of favored Aaron Burr in the election of 18, in, in, the, in the House of Representatives controversy uh, over, over Jefferson in 1801. And obviously that's another thing that did not endear Jefferson to, uh, Marshall to Jefferson. Um, so th there's that whole political context of the election and the battle in Congress over this. And I think there's also this sense that this was a brazenly political act that, uh, again, I mean, not of all the problems of, of having this delivered and everything that, uh, that, that Jeff talked about, but it's also something that on its face seems to be uh, such, a, such an overtly political act that it, it simply any fair-minded person would realize that for what it was. So, that's, that's, so Marshall, in his opinion, um, uh, you know, I guess I have a question about the mode in which he delivers the opinion because it seems to me this is – this is meant to be laid out in a very logical step-by-step -step argument. And I'm wondering, first of all, if that, if that approach to delivering opinions, is that a, is that a sort of traditional approach that uh, may stretch back even to the way English courts would, would, would decide such things? Uh, or is that meant by Marshall to avoid the appearance of being political, the way he lays out a sort of logical argument? Um, um, and then, of course, uh, maybe we can talk about the argument itself, as Todd says, he's he says there are three big questions that have to be answered. Um, and he starts with that question about um, whether or not, uh, he starts with the question of the law, right? What is the law with regard to commissions? Must they in fact be delivered or has a commission been officially or legally delivered at a certain point without them actually having received uh, the, the, the piece of paper with the president's seal on it? So uh, I'm not sure that there's a, question in there, but if anybody wants to play with well, any of these I things. Think the, I mean, the question that a lot of people have asked, and reasonably so, is why didn't Marshall just start with the third question, right? The third question Ooh, is, good question. does yeah. the Supreme Court have the power to issue this writ to, to uh, Secretary Madison? If the answer is no, then, then we, can't we just move on, right? Why do you have to go through the first two, which is, does he have this, you know, does he have a right, and do the laws afford him a remedy? Now, that, that's what, as, as Todd was suggesting that's exactly what um, that's exactly what angered and irritated Jefferson. He thought well, that's fascinating. You don't have to do all this. You don't yeah. have to excoriate us. All you have to do is say you can't don't have the power to issue the writ and we're done. So if he had gone right to the third question and said the court has no authority to uh, to force a writ of uh, or to issue a writ of mandamus in this case, right? Mm -hmm. Then it wouldn't have appeared as political politically biased as it, as, as, as it does because he goes through the first two points. Is that the... Is that the... Yeah. Now, I, I would say that that's, the, that's a lot of people had that response at the time, and some scholars still think about it like that. I do think that there were legal and political reasons why Marshall didn't do it that way, why he laid out the three questions as he did, okay. because legally, it is true that questions one and two, in order to decide the third question, does the court have the power to issue the writ? Um, Marbury had to have legal standing to be in front of the court to even make the case that he had the writ. The way that he establishes legal standing is to, to answer questions one and two in the affirmative and say, yes, he has a legal right to this. Yes, the laws afford him a remedy. Then the question is, are we the court 
that should be issuing that remedy. If you don't do those legally, and Matt, Matt Frank has written on this, um, it, that if you don't give the, if you don't have legal standing to be in front of the court to make this case, the court wouldn't even take the case to make a decision. But I also think the political aspect of this is that um, Marshall did not. Marshall knew that he couldn't. If he had issued a decision in favor of Marbury, Madison would simply have ignored it, and it would have been another blow to the court's authority and independence. I see. I see. So, that's exactly right. So, but on the other hand, Marshall did not want to make the court look weak and simply ignore the issue or say we don't have any authority to issue the writ. So he didn't want to look like it was avoiding any conflict with the Jeffersonians. But he did, he did want to avoid a conflict they couldn't win. Yeah, and I think that's the genius of, of the way Marshall sets up this decision for the reasons Jeff just talked about. Those first two questions are sort of the easy ones, and they're the ones that would seem to point to a conclusion that a wrong has been done, a right has been deprived, and Jefferson and Madison have to now deliver this. But then Marshall backs away because, again, he had no authority and no ability to enforce this. He had no way of making this stick, and Madison sort of could have simply ignored it. And then what? The court, as Jeff notes, would have been totally powerless, would have publicly looked weak. This way he can get in his licks against Jefferson and Madison. Uh, he can't excoriate them for acting the wrong way here, but then he can sort of back away from that in a way that, lead, that, that inflicts, I guess, damage or punishment in some ways, but doesn't ultimately come after them by demanding something that Marshall and the court cannot back up. Yeah. So it's a very ingenious way. And the only way to get to that, I think, is by ordering the questions the way he does. Yeah, and, and look, it, and these questions build the drama, right? If, you, if, the, if the first answer to the, que <laughs> answer the first question is yes, you're like, uh-oh. And then the second question is yes, the laws of formal remedy then, and this is true. Um, we know from firsthand accounts that the room, as I said before, was packed and the people in the room the tension and the audible murmur in the room grew and grew as Marshall read this because those who understood what he was saying realized he, the next thing he's about to say is they've got to turn over the commission and all hell's going to break loose if that happens. Wow. So, um, and, but, so there was enormous drama even within the room and then he gets to this final answer and says no and there's this kind of gasp and bewilderment among the spectators because that's not what they were expecting. Yeah, that's fascinating. So the first question is, does uh, Marbury have a right to the commission? And he answers the question, yes, as you were saying, Jeff. And then we go to the second question. If he, if he has a right, uh, is, is there some legal uh, remedy to, to make sure that he gets that, that commission that he should legally have? And the answer to that is yes. And then it leaves, it leaves this is a, that's a great way to put it, Jeff, the drama's building. Then the question is, what's the remedy? And um, maybe we can talk a little bit about what that remedy is and, and um, how Marbury is supposed to get it, according to Marshall. If the court has no power, as he decides in the end, to issue a writ of mandamus in this particular case. Right. Can I just say, a couple, Chris? Please, go right ahead. I don't want to skip too quickly over questions one and two. Go for it. Talk, let's talk about one and two. That's fine. Okay. Um, because there's a couple of important ideas in here, which get, Please. you know, these are just very nascent ideas and they get developed later in American political and constitutional thinking over the, over a long course of American history. But, you know, um, right. He says Marbury has a right to the commission because once the president signs that 
as a matter of the principles of law, the signature makes the commission valid. And he also notes this, that the president does not, as the executive, have discretion to refuse to deliver the commission because the law, the Judiciary Act uh, said that um, he shall commission these people. And so the shall, he took it as a duty. And he does, uh, he, it's interesting because here you get a first notion of sort of um, um, political questions, which is, he says, some issues are of the Constitution or of our political system are purely political and some are legal. So it, this, in, as the executive, the president has a lot under the Constitution, a lot of discretion where he doesn't, the law does, cannot compel him to do something. But where there's a legally vested right, he does not have that kind of discretion. It's not a political matter. It's a legal matter. So uh, he goes on, to, and then he says, shall commission is a duty under the law, and if that's what it says, that's what has to happen. It has to be um, delivered. Yeah, okay. And building on that some, I mean, this, this question, this notion of vested legal rights, Marshall has to do a lot of heavy lifting for him here because it's, it's a key one. And I think that's going to be one of the other significances of this case is that what Marshall is doing here is setting up the court as a kind of protector of these vested legal individual rights. And so many, as, as we see, so many later Supreme Court decisions do turn on these matters of vested individual rights. But that's a kind of one of those niches that we talked about that Marshall, I think, is carving out here for the court. It's one of those areas where he can assert some of the court's independence in a way that's, that's going to be significant. And although, again, ultimately the answer to the third question is going to be that he's not going to claim this power right now that the court can do, the, the notion of the court as a protector of these vested legal rights, I think, is going to be an important way to lead into the individual rights that uh, the court will set itself up as, as being the defender of in subsequent cases. Yeah, so one, so one of the things that Federalists uh, in the 17, late 1780s argued in defense of the court, if I remember correctly, is that they have, no, they have no power really to compel action on the part of the other branches. Uh, in other words, they, have no, they, have, they don't have the power of the sword, they don't have the power of the purse and these other things. Um, but isn't the fact, um, Jeff, to go back to your point, um, or a point that you made, um, isn't the fact that Marshall is saying the president must issue an assertion of the, the court's power to either prescribe or maybe perhaps even proscribe executive power? Well, um, Marshall says the, the law says he shall commission. So he yeah, but Jefferson didn't, Jefferson didn't agree with that. Yeah, so so Jefferson says, but shall commission me commission means signed, sealed, delivered. Marshall says, no, as a matter of law, it just means signed and sealed, and those are the ancient usages of law, and that's what that's what the president, when a law is written, it assumes certain things. It can't say everything. It assumes certain ancient usages of law, and that's one of those. Yeah, but I can see, I can see the point of view where they would say that that's a kind of backdoor way of. By saying it's the law that compels and not the courts, that's really just a backdoor way of the courts interpreting a law a certain way to, 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 um, to you know, to prescribe a, a certain understanding yeah. of what executive power is in this particular case. Yeah. Now, uh, that, and that's exactly why Jefferson was so piqued by that part of the decision. Mm -hmm. Question number one really bugged him. Marshall's answer to that really bugged him. The Marshall's answer to question number three 
as I said before, did not occasion any comment by Jefferson, even in his private correspondence. He didn't dispute that. But question one bothered him. Now, Marshall's response in question two is, you know, does the law afford him a, a remedy? He says yes, because the president, while the president has discretion in his political functions, he cannot violate a legally vested right. The law says he shall commission. That establishes the right. So according to the law, the commission must be handed over. And, and that law that you're referring to, the, um, from, that was passed by Congress, that's not the law that's in question in the case. Marshall doesn't challenge the, there's no challenge to the constitutionality of that law, correct? Correct. That's the okay. uh, he was commissioned under the Judiciary Act of 1801, as Todd said, it was sort of the last minute passed by the last minute Federalist Congress. Okay. Okay, but there is an aspect of that law that is being challenged, and that's the that's the, co the question of original versus appellate jurisdiction. Am I correct about that? Okay. That's right. And we'll get to that. That's good. I don't want to get ahead too far. Uh, Jeff, you said there were others, or and Todd, Todd, feel free to jump in, but you said there were some other uh, fundamental concepts that are introduced in points one and two. Can you talk a little bit more about what those might be? Well, I think uh, just to lay it out a little more clearly, I think one is this notion of, um, as Todd said, one is legally vested rights and the fundamental mm -hmm. importance of the court inquiring into what the legally vested rights of individuals are. And that's going to be the foundation for the court to be able to make legal decisions in the future. Wow. And, the second, and the second thing is, and that's really important. Yes, that's um, and, huge. And I would also say, by the way, I think that, again, this, is, this would even go back to Federalist 78 by Hamilton, where he actually says, if the courts don't have the power of judicial review, if they have to follow in their own courts in making decisions, unconstitutional laws or accept unconstitutional executive action, then what, how can they defend or how can the rights of individuals be defended? If you don't, if you have your day in court, and the court is simply an instrument that must follow unconstitutional actions of the Congress or president, and that violate your legally vested rights, then what recourse do you ever have as an individual? The people may have recourse, but you as an individual don't, and rights are legally vested in, in individuals. That was always Marshall's um, idea. So that that's a really important idea, and the other one is this notion of of some some matters under the Constitution are political and some are legal. So when the president exercises his executive power, he does have a lot of discretion. So Marshall says, for example, we're not courts could not require him to divulge secrets that are essential to the operation of the executive power. But when the law says he shall commission, he shall commission. Yeah, and I just wanted to speak to that same point. The uh political legal distinction that Jeff just made, because I think that's, to me, one of the fascinating things about this case, is we've got two very different conceptions of what those mean and how they play out. Jefferson, it seems, is arguing for a, that the Constitution is basically a political document. I mean, we might ask a question, is it a legal or a political document? Maybe we'd answer one or the other. Maybe we'd answer both. But Jefferson seems to be arguing that it is a political document, that the meaning of the Constitution is best determined by legislatures because they are closest to the people. And it's not something that should be left in the hands of unelected judges. So for Jefferson, the, the Constitution is, in his mind, and should be, a political document. Marshall, I think, takes exactly the opposite position. He's arguing that it's a legal document, that the meaning is really best and possibly can only be determined by the courts. Uh, and for that, then, it needs to be left in the hands of a trained and independent 
judiciary whose job is solely focused on determining that, that question. So I think, again, there's so much going on in this case, as there is in nearly every uh, important Supreme Court case. And part of it, I think, is this struggle over whether the Constitution is a constitutional document, sorry, is a political document primarily, or yeah. is a legal document primarily. Where do you draw the line between those, and how what's the partisan fallout of Jefferson the Republican calling it a political document and Marshall the Federalist calling it a legal document? Yeah, and I just add to that, if, 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 the doc, if the Constitution is fundamentally a political document, meaning a statement of political principles to which we aspire in law, um, then, as Jefferson said later, then it just makes sense that the people or their representatives be the final interpreters of it, or even the primary interpreters of it. Because if it's their document and it's political, then the political branches or the source of political authority, the people, should be the interpreters of it. And that, you know, that's a really important point. One thing that this establishes, you could say one of the things this case does really establish is, at least for the federal judiciary, on down the line is that the Constitution is law and operates, must operate in federal courts as law. Now, some questions under the law are political, right, he says, and some are judicial, meaning involving legally vested rights, but the Constitution is law. That's a really important idea. And, and it's not true of a lot of constitutions around the world. I mean, to state the obvious, the Soviet Union had a constitution, but it wasn't really law. Um, and a lot of countries have constitutions which explicitly are not law in the way that this is. Yeah, that's fascinating. Um, we have a number of really interesting questions coming in. I've been asking some of them, uh, sort of putting them in my own words. Um, so there's a question about um, about the rem. Once the court decides that Marbury does have a remedy, um, what what is the remedy, and why does the court decide that they should not be the ones to provide it? The 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 remedy is For a writ, the the remedy is a writ of mandamus. Um, okay. But the court, so yes, he does. That is the remedy. The writ is a writ is a judicial order, right? And the writ uh, is mandamus is an, a judicial order to some government official, usually an executive official, to carry out an act that they are legally required to carry out. So the law says they have to do this, but they're not doing it. The court issues this writ of mandamus on behalf of an individual that says you shall now carry this out. And if they don't, of course, they're in contempt of court. So he says, yes, the, the, you are, he is entitled to a writ of mandamus, but the Supreme Court cannot issue it. And, and then that's his whole discussion of Section 13 of the Judiciary Act, where he goes on, where he says it can't issue because Congress in that act added to the original jurisdiction of the court and made the Supreme Court the first court to hear the case and have the authority to issue the writ. And he says, that that is uh, contrary to the Supreme Court's original jurisdiction in Article Three of the Constitution, and therefore that part of the Judiciary Act, Section 13, is void. I see. So, so do we know what happened? Did did this go back to a lower court, to an appellate court? Um, I don't from this know. point, does anybody know? I don't know actually what no. happened. It did not. It did not. Because there was no because there was no legal. Um, after this, there was no legal remedy um, in the law to allow the lower courts to be able to issue these writs. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. 
So that's, you, that, you sort of think to yourself, well, if the Supreme Court can't do it, then obviously a lower federal court has to be able to do it. But yeah. if the law does not say they can, their interpretation was, well, then we can't. <laughs> so, so Marbury's, uh, it doesn't really help Marbury. Uh, he's not allowed. In effect. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah that's right. Yeah, that's somebody right. asked that question, and, uh, you know, yeah. Uh, there's an there's a interesting contradiction going I, on. I will here. say, can I just add one thing? Please, and this, yeah, this, I'd this, like this, what you like. A scholar, uh, there's some, been some scholarly work on this, including by a guy named Nelson Lund, who said that even, even Marshall's interpretation of the Judiciary Act, Section 13, uh, this is the Judiciary Act of 1798, even his interpretation of that is a little, it's open to question at least because the judiciary act section 13 actually says the supreme court shall issue writs of mandamus according to the usages of law and one of the things that uh, lunda argues is that the usages of law phrase does not mean therefore automatically the supreme the law is giving the supreme court original jurisdiction over this because it was always understood that higher courts the usages of law mean they could issue the writ based on an appeal from a lower court to them. So in other words, Marshall interpreted this statute as conferring new and extra constitutional authority on the court. He didn't have to interpret it that way. Now, if he didn't interpret, he, why would he have? Well, so he could declare the law unconstitutional and articulate this doctrine of judicial review to strengthen the court as an independent, independent institution. Otherwise, it would have been a very legal technical decision that would not have had the same um, force and effect for the court. And I think it's interesting that although Marshall is clearly the advocate of the, the Constitution as being a legal document, Marshall is himself a very politically shrewd person. <laughs> he, he really grasps the political intricacies that are involved here. And I think he's, he's again, as Jeff notes, he kind of is stating as matters of, of fact and, and things that are not debatable, what are in fact debatable interpretations, as Jeff just noted. He says, you know, here's what the original Judiciary Act means. Here's what it's about. These are the implications. Those are all contestable, debatable points open to multiple ways of interpretation. But because Marshall presents it as this is how it is in order to serve his own purposes in this case, and I think for later on down the road, that's really an act of, of politics of political leadership in some ways that, um, that Marshall exercises. And Marshall was himself, a, uh, from all accounts, uh, a very um, amiable, very friendly, very well-received, well-thought-of, uh, companionable kind of person. Uh, had friends on both sides of the aisle, as they said, won over people who disagreed with him politically. And I think he's someone who's, whose political leadership of the court, you could probably argue, is just as important as his legal leadership of the court. Oh, I, I think there's no question that's true. Yeah. I mean, John Marshall's, when he, when he died, he was universally hailed as a great American statesman, not just a great American jurist. That's right. Wow. And of course, to the eternal frustration of Jefferson and the Republicans, every time they appointed somebody to the court, John Marshall somehow worked his black that's magic right. on them <laughs> and got them to agree with him. Wow. That's fascinating. We have about yeah we have about ten minutes left and there are a lot of questions about the sort of the consequences um, so going back to the larger question in fact Larry asked earlier 
um, if, 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 um, if this was viewed more in a political light, the significance of the case at the time was that was more of a political nature. Um, why has it over time become considered such an important American landmark case? And we've talked a little bit about this, Jeff and, and Todd. You've both talked about uh, some, maybe, maybe, maybe some of the precedents. Maybe precedents not the right word, but but Marshall opens some doors or does establish some some groundwork for future developments in the court, uh, the way the court um, views its role in our constitutional system. So can we talk a little bit more about what those consequences are, the, both the immediate and the long term? And then I'm going to come back to some big questions uh, that people really want to know the answers to after that. So. Sure. Can I, I'll take a crack at that. Um, first of all, I, I would direct people to the work. If you want to read some more about this, I'd direct people to the work of a, of a political scientist at Princeton named Keith Whittington. And he's written a book and lots of articles and books on this question. It's called The Political Foundations of Judicial Supremacy. Um, and it's not as boring as the title sounds. It's, no, it's actually a really good book. And Keith is a very, very fine scholar. And um, what, what he essentially says is, look, how did exactly how did this happen over time that Marbury v. Madison kind of took on this iconic um, position as establishing the Supreme Court as an interpreter of the Constitution and maybe even the supreme interpreter of the Constitution. And what he says is, is it, first of all, it took many, many, many decades. And what happened really was this, the court from 1803 to 1857 in Dred Scott, the Supreme Court never struck down a significant piece of federal legislation. Okay, so they never used this power. And when they did uphold laws, they generally speaking upheld laws uh, in favor of federal power, acts passed by Congress. Think of Gibbons versus Ogden and the Commerce Clause, for example. They generally upheld those, and they upheld presidential actions. So Congress and the president became very comfortable over the course of Marshall's tenure until 1835 or 6, right? Marshall's tenure in 1835 ends. They became very comfortable letting the Supreme Court decide these kind of constitutional questions. And because Marshall was so skilled and so well-liked and sort of um, uh, just regarded as a great statesman by the time of his death, that, that his own stature continued on to the Supreme Court as it went forward. And really, the Supreme Court was not severely damaged in its judicial authority until the Dred Scott decision of 1857, when people said, oh, it really is a bunch of partisan hacks. They're not like old John Marshall, who really was a jurist and a statesman. So the, the court accumulated political constitutional authority over about five or six decades. And even Dred Scott couldn't squander all of that authority. And they pick up that authority again, starting in the 1860s and 70s and then on from there, um, even though it still remains some disputed and there's criticism of it. But their constitutional authority, by the time you get to people like FDR and the court packing scheme, is very well established, and then professional law schools rise up, and lawyers start, law professors start repeating this to law students, and then judges pick it up, and it becomes an article of faith in American uh, public life. But it took the court being very careful and shrewd over time under John Marshall, and it took the the, the presidency and Congress kind of accepting and ceding that authority to them over time to deal with these issues. People like Buchanan, right, who actually said, 
thank goodness the Supreme Court has decided this issue of slavery. Now we don't have to deal with it. You know, that was the mentality because the court had been so wise in many people's minds up until that time. Yeah, I think I think what this decision does is kind of draw some, I think, some very subtle lines in the sand that neither side then crosses. Um, Jefferson sort of backs away. I mean, he sort of takes a, a victory in some way here in that he's not forced to, to deliver these commissions, which he would never have done anyway. But then he doesn't directly challenge the court's, Marshall's notion of what the court can do. And yet I think Marshall also is, if not deferential, very respectful of these lines of division as well, so that Marshall doesn't push these issues very much either, because I think Jefferson realizes that he's got the strength, he's got the popular leadership and support, uh, and, and the popular weight is behind him. Marshall realizes that as long as he can keep the court alive and afloat and independent, they will over time acquire more power and build up that tradition that Jeff uh, just talked about. But that's something that's going to take take some time. This will have to play out over time. So again, I think we look back, we always look for, well, where did this concept of judicial review start? And this is clearly a decision where you can trace it back to. But again, that sort of misreads how the case played out at its time. I think that sort of uh, revisits history in some ways because one of the things, I remember when I first read the actual decision, I thought we'd have this grand declaration of power and authority and everything else. And I kept looking for it and think, well, did, did, am I missing a page? Is, is something left <laughs> out of my copy? You know, right. Where is it? And it's not there. So I think, again, retrospectively, that looks like this huge, massive decision that sanctions judicial review. But I think at the time what it does is to sort of draw some lines uh, without taking firm action. And those are lines that more or less become respected on both sides, legislative, executive, and then the judicial side. And I think because of that, it allows the court, Marshall carves out the space in which the court can do its work, and then it does its work. And then having done that work for so long, as Jeff notes, then there's a tradition, and there's an authority and a power that comes from that tradition. Yeah, so, so much so, just one last thing, so much so that when Andrew Jackson vetoes the uh, reauthorization of the National Bank in 1832, you get people like Daniel Webster standing up on the floor saying the president says he can interpret the Constitution in ways contrary to what the Supreme Court has said. Who does this guy think he is? The Supreme Court is the final word. Well, you know, so by the time of 1832 and John Marshall's still there, the court has begun to accumulate that kind of authority. Yeah, that's fascinating. Uh, Todd, I especially like the way that you put this. Uh, Marshall draws some lines but doesn't quite cross them. A lot of uh, a lot of participants want to know of both of you, when do you think those lines were actually crossed? So one question that was submitted, if, if, um, if Marshall puts forward a, a rather tentative understanding of judicial review in Marbury, when did the court, can you think of a case or a number of cases, when did, it, when did the court really assert judicial review? When did it become more like what people think of it today? Uh, I think Dred Scott. Dred Scott, interesting. 1857, okay. right? So they not only are they going to issue a, a, what they regard as a binding legal constitutional interpretation, but also they're going to try to solve a massive political problem, the problem of slavery, all in one fell legal swoop. Um, but I would just add to that, that that they tried that. But as you know, those of you who have read Lincoln's um, speech on Dred Scott from 1857 um, and also his first inaugural where he addresses this issue, he says, some people say because the Supreme Court has made a decision in a case between two private parties 
Therefore, it has settled the public policy of this country forever on the meaning of the Constitution. He says, yeah, if that's true, then the people have ceased to be their own rulers. We do not understand the Supreme Court's authority that way. And a president could still say that and get away with it. Now, you know, a lot of other people, because they liked the decision, wanted to say you can't say that about the Supreme Court. And even people who didn't like the decision, like Stephen Douglas said, you can't say that about the Supreme Court. But Lincoln felt that he still in the public mind had not yet totally wrapped itself around the notion of judicial supremacy and embraced it. He could still say it. And there were a lot of people who agreed with him. So it's really not till I think it's not till after the Civil War and the kind of acceptance of the Supreme, reacceptance of the Supreme Court's authority in the 1880s and 1890s, where you finally get, for example, in 1896 in Plessy v. Ferguson, even John Marshall Harlan in dissenting from Separate But Equal says, the court is the supreme expositor of the Constitution. So certainly by the early 1890s, that view is enshrined in the American public mind. Wow. Yeah, just to add briefly to that, I think this is going to be, Chris, probably one of the great questions you'll be able to ask each Saturday when you do these, um, these seminars this year, these webinars this year, because I think at a certain point, I mean, we're sort of starting with this concept today, and what we seem to conclude is, well, this articulates the idea, but it doesn't necessarily assert it as a hard and fast rule that everyone's going to agree to. It is part of a judicial review is developed over time as part of a process, and I think one of the things that um, the teachers and, and you and your panelists later in the year can decide is, as you go through these landmark Supreme Court cases, where do we see this? You know, is it, is it Dred Scott, as Jeff suggests? Is it the later post-Civil War cases? Do you have to wait for the 20th century in some of those cases where you get this clearly enshrined as a, as a, as a principal concept? So I think this is a question you'll probably be asking and discussing throughout the series this year, and I, I think that's going to be fascinating. Yes, well... I, I want to thank, we've come to the end of our time together, so I want to thank you both for helping us get started down that line of, of, of questioning, Todd, as you were just putting it. Uh, Jeff, thanks uh, so much for joining us. This has been really fascinating. I've taken a lot of notes, jotted a lot of things down to, to think about. I've, I've learned a great deal from, our, uh, from, from both of you being here this morning, and I want to thank you both sincerely, uh, sincerely for being here. Yeah, delighted to be here. Thanks. And yeah, thanks it was really. Yeah. And thanks, thanks for everybody who was here. Yeah, yeah, thanks for the Thank panelists you. joining us. Thanks again. This is really great. Thanks for the questions that were submitted. Um, there were so many good questions. We didn't get to all of them, but that's the, that's the nature of uh, having a limited amount of time together. But um, if you've liked, uh, enjoyed today's conversation, um, uh, consider a, a, an online course from the Master of Arts in American History and Government program, which you can find out more about uh, from tah.org. Uh, and... Um, Look it up. You can help us spread the word about these programs by sharing the, the link, the archive link, which you can find there. Um, and you'll receive that link by email next week. Um, and you'll also get an email that, uh, with a link for a certificate of participation. So um, pl please take a look into the MAG courses and, and, um, and see if anything interests you. Uh, our next Saturday webinar will be September 10th. And it will be on McCulloch v. Maryland. So immediately you can see how we're probably going to pick up some, some great themes that uh, Professor Sickinga and, uh, and Estes laid out for us today. Uh, we'll be joined by Jeremy Bailey of the University of Houston and Dan Monroe of Millican University for that webinar. And we've already posted some suggested readings for that. So between now and then, please take a look at those things. And uh, uh, best wishes in the meantime. So I hope to see you all then. Thank you for listening to another TAH.org podcast. 
You can find archives of all our previous programs, as well as information about future programs, at tah.org webinars, or on iTunes by searching for teachingamericanhistory.org.